All right. Well, thank you, uh, everybody, for coming again. Um, I figured that the best way to start this show, which again is about Saudi Arabia, we need just a little bit of backstory on Islam in general. And so I think uh, an interesting way to start the show would be to tell you the story of why Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all considered the Abrahamic religions. It, it, it's, I don't know, it's a fun story. There's, you know, sex involved. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. And the story of Abraham goes like this. One day, Abraham's walking around, and he hears the voice of God. God tells him, look, why don't you wander around for a bit? I'll make you the father of a great nation. But there's a problem. Abraham's first wife, Sarah, is barren. She can't have kids. So Abraham does what he do. He has sex with his slave, Hagar. He basically goes to her, and he's like, Hagar! <laughs> and yeah, they have a go. She will bore him Ishmael. Now... Time passes. God comes back to Abraham. He says, hey, man, you and I, we're still close, right? Abraham's like, yeah. God says, well, let's make a pact between you and I, a covenant, if you will. If you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll get your wife, Sarah, pregnant. Abraham says, what do I got to do? God says, cut off your foreskin. Abraham says, I'm going to need to hear that again. <laughs> but this, according to the Bible, at 99 years old, Abraham circumcises himself. Now, just as a quick aside, I don't know if anybody here has ever taken care of like an aging parent or grandparent, but you can only imagine what kind of abject nightmare this would have been to walk in on. Your 99-year-old father sitting there with his little raisin penis in one hand, a knife in the other, and you're just like, Dad, no! Why are you doing that? And he's like, some guy I know wants it. Lots of ins and outs, Ishmael. <laughs> Just get me some wine. <laughs> anyway, Abraham circumcises himself. God takes that foreskin, tapes it to the wall of his heaven office, much like a businessman does with his first dollar, because this is God's first Jew. <laughs> so, God makes good on his promise, and he gets Sarah pregnant. She gives birth to Isaac. Now... This is where things get very Maury Povich, because Sarah is not too happy that Abraham has a firstborn from a different baby mama. And that's true. There's no denying that. It's like, Abraham, dude. You are the father. <laughs> so, so Abraham's solution to this is that he ends up banishing Hagar and his son Ishmael to the desert. He banishes them. Muslims will trace their ancestry back through Ishmael, Jews, and subsequently Christians will trace it through Isaac. Both share the same father, Abraham, hence the God of Abraham. And just so you can see how this plays out linearly from a biblical perspective, it would go blah, 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 Abraham. Blah, 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 Moses. Blah, Joshua. Blah, 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 Jesus. Blah, 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 Muhammad. So... 600 years after Jesus, Muhammad is said to have heard the final word of God and written it down in the Quran. So when you read the Quran, it's essentially like reading the Quran by God as ghostwritten by Muhammad. <laughs> it's an incredibly sacred text that you can buy on Amazon for a penny. Now, this... <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> this 
uh, time period when, when Muhammad lives, which is during the seventh century, is the only time I'd want you to, uh, uh, to, to remember walking away from this talk. Because anytime we talk about Islamic fundamentalism, we're talking about people who want to mimic the life of the prophet during this time period. Okay, and with that, let's move on to the topic at hand, which we're here to talk about Saudi Arabia. And I hope to, during the course of this talk, show you how Saudi Arabia fosters and exports extremism. Ha 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 <laughs> So to look at how they foster it, we have to look at the culture, and to do that, let's go back to the end of the First World War. Now, what you're looking at here is a map, and you'll notice that Arabia at the time is just called Arabia. There is no Saudi Arabia. And what's going on here, again, we're talking around the 1920s, is you've got a guy conquering land left, right, and center, and it's this man, Saud. By 1932, he will be the one to conquer all of Arabia and name it after himself. This is where we get Saudi Arabia. It's literally named after a guy. Um, Saud will go on to have 45 boys. And so just, just take a second and let the implications of that wash over you, which is that you may be looking at the image of a man who has never masturbated. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> these 45 boys are the ones still running the country to this day. They've had equal number of children themselves. In total, there's around 7,000 Saudi princes. And just to be clear that tonight, while I will be very critical of Saudi Arabia, my criticism is directed at this ruling family and not the people of Saudi Arabia who are subjects under their rule. Okay, so one of the questions we have to answer is how did the non-masturbator do it? How, how did he conquer Arabia? Well, he had help. Help in the form of religious fighters who followed the teachings of this man, Wahhab. The people who followed his teaching, he taught a very fundamentalist interpretation of Islam, which said that you've got to get back to mimicking the life of the prophet during the seventh century. And one of the things that the prophet did when Islam was first starting out, much like every religion, is spread it by the sword. This is where we get the concept of jihad, or holy war. And then for a long interlude, jihad came to mean internal struggles. So like, I want this ham sandwich, I don't need the calories. Uh, this. <laughs> But, but Wahhab resurrects the idea to say, no, you've got to fight and die in holy war. And so a pact is formed between the people who follow the teachings of Wahhab, who we call Wahhabists, and, and Saud himself. And basically the pact goes like this. They say, these religious fighters say, we'll fight for you, we'll make you head of state, so long as, as head of state, you spread our interpretation of Islam which is called Wahhabism. And again, Wahhabism is a form of Islam much like Protestantism or Lutheranism is a form of Christianity. So this is the first big conceptual takeaway I want you to get from this talk, which is that in Saudi Arabia there is absolutely no separation of church and state. It's a completely codependent relationship. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like every codependent relationship, this is going to hit a rocky road. So now we're going to move forward in history and see how this plays out. In 1973, the Saudis embargo oil against the US for supporting Israel during the Yom Kippur War. What this means is that supply plummets and demand skyrockets, and the Saudis get paid. They start off the year making around $4 billion in profit from oil. They're going to finish it making 23.6. 
but, but it, it will only skyrocket from there. The point is that this is known, this period is known as the largest transfer of wealth that's ever happened in the history of the world. And remember, it's going to one family. So what do they do with the money? Well, overnight cities are built. And one of the men who will secure the principal building contracts is this guy, Mohammed bin Laden. He will go on to have 54 kids, one of whom is Osama bin Laden. This is where the bin Ladens get their family wealth. Another thing they start doing is just buying stuff. They're buying stuff like multiple palaces per prince, yachts, planes. Because again, what better way to truly mimic the life of the prophet during the 7th century than by sitting in a gold throne on your own private 747? <laughs> I think we should all just take a moment here and acknowledge that if you're attempting to live like you're in the 7th century, this is a swing and a miss. <laughs> And I, I, this is the, I'm, I'm going I'm to tarry here for a second because in all the research that I did for this talk, the fact that they have such trouble, the Saudi family living like they're in the 7th century, is to me the most face palm of all of this. Because in my head, that's a very easy goal to achieve, to live like you're in the 7th century. I mean, if you want to be a doctor, that's 12 years of your life. If you want to live in, like you're in the 7th century, you just got to drive west for two days and abandon your car. <laughs> if you want to live like you're in the 7th century, all you basically have to do is just say no to shit. Someone's like, hey, do you want to go to this? No. Do you want to try this? No. <laughs> what else do you have to do? Just look around you. Is there plumbing? Yes. Leave. <laughs> go to the desert. Eat. Pray. Poop, you're done. <laughs> and I think it's important to point out that, give or take, this is the way that they're requiring their population to live. And so that's a very odd thing. It's, it's as if the Saudi family is throwing a 1920s themed party, but they themselves showing up dressed like Bender from Futurama. <laughs> well, dude, how are you fucking this up so bad? <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'm not the only one who noticed this. And in 1979, shit pops off. Uh, what you're looking at here, this is Islamapalooza 79. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kidding. This is, this is the Grand Mosque at Mecca. This is the holiest site in Islam. This is in Saudi Arabia. And in 1979, there's an armed takeover of the mosque. Basically, it's stormed. There's 400 people. Uh, with guns, and they're led by this guy, Juhayman, who is the love child of Cat Stevens and Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> and, um, and he's saying what I've just been articulating, which is that the Saudi family are not true Wahhabists, therefore they have no right to rule. Now, the Saudi family has a very interesting reaction to this. They get him out, they kill him, they kill all his followers but they set out to prove that they're good Wahhabists. And the way they do this is not by reforming their own behavior, but, but rather by cracking down on society. Before 1979, Saudi Arabia was a conservative society. After 1979, it gets ultra-conservative. And so what we're going to do now is look at some of these reforms. The first one they do is in the school system, the educational system. This is Thomas Lippmann writing, the Saudis turned over classes and mosques to teachers and imams who preached a fire and brimstone form of the faith that emphasized killing infidels. 
I think it's important also to point out that Juhayman, uh, Oscar the Grouch himself, was a product of the Saudi public school system before these reformations took place. Nevertheless, stuff like this continues on to this day in varying forms. As of uh, 2012, essentially it's taught to eighth graders that Jews are apes, Christians are swine. So basically what happens is there, things like this will pop up in the media, and there'll be international outrage, and the Saudis will just be like, well, we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. And then they take it out and everybody just forgets about it. But I'm sitting here going, now hang on, wait a second. I want to know what lesson plan this made contextual sense in. I highly doubt that was some random non sequitur in a math class, like Jews are apes, Christians are swine, carry the two. <laughs> Right? It had a flow. I'm not sure how. You know, maybe something just like, okay, class, tomorrow we're gonna take a trip to the zoo. And speaking of animals, the ape says, Hello, I like money. <laughs> I've got tons of these. The ape says, Why do you eat so fast? You can't even taste it. The ape says, Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> the problem here is uh, big when it comes to the Saudi school system because over a third of the time a child spends in the Saudi public school system is devoted to religious studies, which is typically rote memorization of the Quran. As a result, when they graduate, they don't have skills, and there is currently 30 to 40 percent unemployment in Saudi Arabia right now. That's a staggering statistic. Saudi Arabia is a welfare state. Okay, let's go back to the mosque, back to 79. Again, we're watching as the Saudis are trying to prove that they're good Wahhabists by cracking down on society. We saw reforms in the education system. Another thing that they do is they crack down on women. Women were newscasters at the time. They're instantly fired. If a woman has any bit of hair showing on the street, she's beaten. And again, this is a practice that largely continues to this day. In Saudi Arabia, women have to enter in through their own separate door in their own home. They can't get a job or go to the hospital without written permission from one of their male masters. And we just have to wonder, where is the U.S. criticism about this? Again, this is a close U.S. ally. You know, it's odd to think that just a couple months ago, there was outrage about the way women were treated in video games. And that's a legitimate argument, perhaps, but I think you have to put that in perspective, which is that when a virtual woman is mistreated in a video game, we get outrage. But when real-life women are mistreated in abjectly worse ways, we get silence. And I almost feel like the only way you get people to care about the reality of this would be to turn it into a video game. Could you imagine the outrage this would get? Anyway, let's go back to the mosque. Back to 1979. This is the part, if you remember when I told you we're going to talk about two things tonight, we're going to see how they foster extremism, and now we're going to switch into seeing how they export it. So we saw domestic reforms. Another thing that they do to prove that they're good Wahhabists after this takeover is they start funding madrasa, which are religious schools, mosques to be built around the world. And they also start funding religious fighters. Now, 79 is a good year if you want to fund a religious fighter because this is, this is the time when the Soviets invade Afghanistan. This is the 10-year Afghan war. And what you're looking at here is just cut and dry 
classical jihad. You've got infidels invading a Muslim land. And so a lot of Saudi men will go and fight in this, in this jihad. And one of the guys who goes is Osama bin Laden. He gives up all his family wealth and he goes to fight for a decade in Afghanistan. And that's why actually the person that I feel worst for in this entire situation is his first wife, Najwa. This was an arranged marriage. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this was an arranged marriage in 1974. So you can only imagine what's going through her head when they tell her, they're like, you're going to marry one of the Bin Ladens, somebody from the wealthiest family outside the royals. You know she just instantly started seeing her showcase showdown appear before her eyes. She's like, what am I getting? A yacht? A solid gold plane? And they're like, no, you get to live in a cave in Afghanistan for a decade. Relax your days away deep inside this rock on an all-expenses-paid, 3,650-day, 3,649-night stay in Kabul, Afghanistan. All which can be yours if Allahu Akbar. But anyway. <laughs> Osama, Osama's there for a decade and he returns home and he is a megastar. And that's not hyperbole. I mean, this guy is a megastar. Again, you can understand why he gave up everything to go do that thing you've been taught to do all throughout school fight in jihad. A year later, Saddam invades Kuwait. Kuwait shares the border with Saudi Arabia right by all the oil fields. And this is when the U.S. comes over and they say, hey, you need us here to uh, kick Saddam out. Well, somebody else goes to see the royal family at this time, too. And that's Osama bin Laden himself. And he says to them, look, do not use the infidels. Use me. Use me and my Afghan fighters. We'll go ahead and knock Saddam out. And the Saudi family looks at him and they're like, dude, You've got 50,000 troops. Saddam has a million. Uh, go fuck yourself. And uh, Osama flips out, which, by the way, is like the start to every supervillain movie on the planet. Like the big CEOs pounded down the hall, and the kid from the mailroom's like, gee, sir, I got this brand new thing. He's like, get the fuck out of here, kid. And he's like, I'll show you one day. <laughs> like, that's essentially what happens. Things go really Jerry Maguire when they tell Osama no. He's just basically like, I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just flip out. <laughs> but he does. He flips out. And he instantly starts preaching against the family, echoing Juhayman. He's saying they're not true Wahhabists, so they don't have a right to rule. And so he's kicked out of the country, and he goes to the Sudan, and this is where he will start Al-Qaeda. Now, what is alleged is this. When he's initially kicked out of Saudi Arabia, all of his assets are frozen. So he goes to Sudan, he's broke. What is alleged is that certain Saudi princes will give him money and fund Al-Qaeda. And if that happens, that's big, because the Saudi princes constitute the government. And so what you're talking about then is state sponsorship of terrorism. And that makes what happened on 9-11 not an act of terror, but war. So we need to figure out if this is the case. And to do so, we're going to start with a story. A lot of you have seen this on YouTube. I'm going to give you a truncated version here. It's 2002, the war on terror is in its infancy, and the CIA has just made their first big catch, Abu Zubaydah, a man at the time they believed was Al-Qaeda's number three man. Before interrogating Zubaydah, the CIA concocts a clever ploy. 
They dress up the interrogation room to look like a Saudi interrogation room, which I have to say, I don't know exactly how you do that. I feel like just in general, most interrogation rooms are pretty minimalistic. I don't know how you'd Saudify this. You know, maybe you put up a banner, just like a little Afghan throw, pipe in some Yusef Islam, you know? But anyway, the, the reason that they're doing this is pretty basic, right? Which is that at the time, it was well known that the Saudis used gruesome torture techniques. And the Saudis were a close US ally. So what they expect to happen is, they take the blindfold off Zubaydah, he takes one look around, he's like, banner, Afghan, artist formerly known as Cat Stevens, I'm in Saudi Arabia, and he freaks out and starts spilling the beans. That's what they expect to happen, but what does happen is when they take the blindfold off Zubaydah, he takes one look around, see he's being detained by Saudis, and he's basically relieved. From memory, he provides the agents with two phone numbers which turn out to be the home and cell phone number of this man, Prince Ahmed, a media magnate, passionate horse racer, and son of the current king of Saudi Arabia. So this is odd. What is a suspected Al-Qaeda operative doing with a Saudi prince's phone number? So the agents are told, go back in the room, tell them the numbers didn't work. They go back in the room, numbers didn't work. Zubaydah provides them with two more numbers, which lead to two more Saudi princes, Prince Sultan and Prince Fahd. So at this point, the U.S. decides to leak the information. They just tell the Saudis, hey, we got this guy here saying some stuff about these princes. And the Saudis go, yeah, we don't know what he's talking about. And within a week, all three princes are dead. Ahmed from a heart attack, Sultan in a car crash on his way to Ahmed's funeral, and Fahd, age 25, dies in the desert of thirst. Now, we do not have enough data to cry conspiracy over their deaths. The uh, traffic accidents are indeed the fourth leading cause of death in Saudi Arabia. Uh, thirst... That's got to be up there, probably around eight. <laughs> I don't know how it works. You, you take an e-pill, maybe, then you lock your keys in your hovercraft. <laughs> um, so we don't have enough data to cry conspiracy, but the fact that Zubaydah has named these princes has been well vetted, and you can check my website where I'll provide you with the source material for that information. Okay, but that's just a story. Do we have anything more concrete? Yes, we do. There were two investigations into 9-11. You're all familiar with the 9-11 Commission report. The first one was Congress's Joint Inquiry Report. What the, what the inquiry report looked for at the end of it was what we've just been talking about, which is state sponsorship of terrorism. And according to co-chair Bob Graham, they found it. Over the course of 28 pages, he says they were able to explicitly link high-ranking Saudis with funding al-Qaeda. Now, the Bush administration uh, redacted these pages. They're all blacked out. They said it was a matter of national security. But Bob Graham, his co-chair, and the other senators who have seen the pages say this has nothing to do with national security. It would just change our relationship with Saudi Arabia overnight. Now, one story did leak from these 28 pages. It's not sexy. It's pretty straightforward. It just goes like this. These are two of our hijackers here, Midhar and Hazmi. When they first come to the US, they're staying in San Diego, where they meet up with a guy named Bayoumi. Bayoumi is being paid directly by the Saudi government. He's making $500 a week at the time. He doesn't do anything. The moment our hijackers show up, he starts getting paid $3,500 a week and rents them an apartment and pays their rent. So right there, we've got it. We just need to know which princes but we've got the middleman. Nevertheless, he, uh, Bayoumi, introduces the hijackers to two more guys, Bazna and Thumieri. Both of them are on the Saudi government payroll. Both of them are also giving money to our hijackers. 
After 9-11, Bayoumi, Bazna, and Thumieri will find their way back to Saudi Arabia. And the 9-11 Commission report attempts to investigate that lead. They're only permitted into Saudi Arabia twice in order to interview these men. And during the, the interviews, the Saudi Internal Security Service stands behind them and is whispering stuff in their ears. One of the 9-11 investigators will conclude about Thumieri, but this is relevant to all of them, essentially that he was deceptive during both interviews, information was either inconsistent or at times in direct conflict with information from other sources. Essentially, he was lying. But anyway, let's, let's just review, okay? We know that Saudi Arabia supports jihad, 15 of the 19 hijackers are Saudis, Osama's a Saudi, and a congressional inquiry explicitly links high-ranking Saudis with funding al-Qaeda, yet we invade this country and drone bomb these countries. And I mean, like, I, I feel like even the most amateur clue player would be able to wrap up this mystery. <laughs> yet the U.S. government somehow, they kick open the door to the library, there's Saudi Arabia standing there like Colonel Mustard with a smoking gun, and the U.S. goes, I got it, it was Mr. Hussein in the study with the candlestick of mass destruction. <laughs> and I mean, we're, look, we're kidding here, but this is kind of exactly how it was sold to the American population for a long time, that Saddam was the one who funded al-Qaeda. And after that, it became about WMD, and after that, it became about democracy promotion in light of the fact that Saudi Arabia gets the lowest possible ratings for freedom in the world. And they called the king who just died, King Abdullah, they called him a reformer. He was on the throne for a decade, and he couldn't nudge seven down, maybe to like a six-nine. He couldn't take some of the mustard off worst. And again, I just want to highlight how important this is because the situation we find ourselves in is that we are in the longest war in U.S. history all because of one event. We need to know who made that event possible. So, have things gotten better? No. Good night. Um, <laughs> um, this, is, this is a leaked White House memo from 2009. Donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide. Who said this? Some obscure politician? No. And so, if Hillary Clinton knows this, why is she not screaming about in the public, let's say? Well, Saudi Arabia from a politician standpoint is an intractable problem. The cold fact is that they control a quarter of the world's proven oil reserves, which means they can decimate the world economy. And when you decimate an economy, lots of people die. The other problem is, is if you were to go in there and overthrow them, which anybody could do overnight, who is going to take their place? This is, this is a, a country that for 80 years has been thoroughly indoctrinated with a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. It's not like there's some other family waiting in the wings, like the Sharifs that are all for democracy and, and, and women's rights. So from a politician standpoint, it's a tough one. But we are not politicians. And I would argue, and I hope I've proven tonight, that we cannot allow the status quo to continue. So I want to offer you three uh, things that we could all do to, to start down the road to changing this untenable situation. So the first one isn't that actionable, but I think it's important to point out that what's truly going to topple the Saudi regime is renewables. For the first time in the history of the world, we're probably going to get to watch as a dictatorship, an absolute monarch, is toppled not by guns, not by bombs, but by what someone dreams up in a lab. 
I think that's very exciting and we need to work to expedite that process by pushing more funding into research and, and development of, of science and technology and away from the 600 billion that we spend in defense which is more than the next eight countries combined. This is schizophrenic spending. The next two things are way more actionable. Saudi Arabia is a very conservative society but there are people working to change it from the inside. This is Manal al-Sharif. In Saudi Arabia women can't drive, she drove. As a result she was put in jail, her son beat up at school, her brother thrown out of the country, all because she drove. And it wasn't even like she was driving that fast. Her car was actually weighed down by the size of her gigantic brass balls. <laughs> but for people like Manal or people like Raif Badawi, who, are, who is getting flogged for blogging, for people like them, we have to sign online petitions. Because I would submit to you that the only reason they're still alive is because the world knows about them. And so the more signatures we get, the more likely the news is to cover them, and they'll be able to keep doing what they're doing. When, when somebody exhibits the fact that they have more backbone than 7,000 Saudi princes combined, we have to have their backs. And finally, I think we need to declassify those 28 pages. There's no way to live in a representational democracy without transparency, especially on something as important as who made 9-11 possible. Because if we don't try and change anything, the status quo will continue as one of our close allies commits one human rights violation after the other, as one of our close allies continues to foster extremism. If we don't do anything, then I just assure you, business will continue as usual. Thank you guys so much for coming out to my talk. I really appreciate it. <laughs>